Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 855 AM, and you have myself, Jacob Andwafa, and... And me, Zane. How are you going? So we're going to be your lovely hosts um, today for this week's program. And um, just before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation, we like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that more than that, sovereignty has never been ceded, and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Okay, so um, there's been quite a big. Um, this past week has been pretty, um, you know, has quite has quite um, a lot has kind of happened. I was going to kind of have a start a bit of discussion about. Everything that is guess, happening in New South Wales regarding the floods, and I was potentially just going to go pass it on to Zane to sort of start that discussion off because it is, yeah, very intense what is happening in New South Wales, including two people um, have died as a result of these massive floods that are happening in New South Wales. Yes, so the uh, the floods are quite serious in New South Wales. It's been called a once in a hundred year flood and uh if recent history is anything to go by, we can probably expect another one in a lot less than a hundred years. Uh the rain has affected a, a huge area and so it's uh there's a hydrologist from the um University of New South Wales has told ABC News that the floods are unprecedented in terms of the size and the amount of rain. There's been big floods over the last, say, 100 years, but they're usually more localised. This is uh, a standout rain event because it affects such a large part of New South Wales. So there's been between 300 to 400 millimetres of rain in the last week, affecting most of the east coast of New South Wales. Uh, there's a huge bank of uh, eastern New South Wales stretching from um, the Gold Coast almost, like right up the top of New South Wales down to about Newcastle, Sydney. There's a huge bank there that's had 400 millimetres of rain over the last week. And right along that sort of whole sort of half of the Great Dividing Range that faces the sea, there's just been ridiculous amounts of rain. Um, to put the 400 millimetres of rain that have hit Sydney in the last week into context, it's about three times the average amount of rain that Sydney gets in the entire month of March. Uh, the, uh, the, the Hawkesbury River has been particularly affected, 
the three largest coastal rivers in New South Wales, the Hawkesbury Nepean, the Clarence River and the Hunter River are all flooded. Uh, tens of thousands of people have been ordered to evacuate from the Hawkesbury Nepean area in Sydney. Uh, the, the valley, which has a catchment of 21,400 square kilometres, has experienced 130 moderate to major floods since records began in the 1790s. On Wednesday, the Hawkesbury River at Windsor peaked at 12.9 metres above sea level, the highest level in 60 years. Uh, so while some have labelled it a one-in-a-hundred-year flood, uh, this uh, doctor, uh, Fiona Johnson, the hydrologist from UNSW, who's been speaking to ABC, has said that does not mean the next flood will be in a hundred years. Uh, what we're actually looking at is the probability this flood will occur in any particular year, which is 1%, so that's 1 in 100. Uh, but what we know from climate change is that it loads the dice in, uh, it loads the dice in favour of severe weather events, be they droughts, bushfires, uh, massive storms, or in this case, um, severe rain events and flooding. So, as we keep pumping carbon dioxide into the air, and as the carbon dioxide that's already in the air continues to warm the planet, much like when you get into bed on a cold winter night and it takes a while for the doona to warm you up, as that warming keeps happening, we can expect to see more of these severe weather events, unfortunately. So it's just the, the latest reminder that... Uh, we really urgently need to cut carbon dioxide emissions. And, uh, yeah, there's a Extinction Rebellion here in Melbourne uh, having a uh, Autumn Rebellion week of action at the moment. So keep an eye out for that and perhaps uh, get along to it if you can. Yeah, I think um, one other thing, I guess a comment on some of the politics of these floods, It's I think it's quite clear that most of the people who are pretty much those who are in power are simply just treating these floods as just another kind of natural kind of disaster, which is actually contrary to what actually a lot of scientists are actually saying about these floods, as sort of Zane has quoted from, that these floods are actually a symptom of, you know, of climate change, um, which are gonna, which is going to mean that extreme weather events just like the bushfires that we experienced at the start of 2020 are going to be more frequent and at the same time we have a government that is completely committed to fossil fuels it it has basically ruled out a a transition till 2050 um, which is actually just not sufficient enough in fact the transition should have been made as early as last year but of course, the current sort of most radical demand that has been sort of put forward in the climate movement is at least reaching something close to net zero emissions by 2030 or 2025. But it's basically the government is essentially holding off on taking any meaningful action until 2050, which I think is quite ridiculous in this context. Yeah, it's suicidal. It's just, it's way too late. Uh, we, we can't wait that long. Uh, there's a good article as well at Climate and Capital Media 
by Pablo Brait. Um, Pablo used to be a campaigner and researcher with Beyond Zero Emissions, and then in recent years he's been with the group Market Forces, and he's done a lot of analysis of super funds investing in fossil fuels, and in this instance, insurance companies uh, investing in fossil fuels. And so there's a good article, it's called Insurers Have No Choice, Swim or Drown. Um, he didn't come up with that title and was not 100% happy with it. Uh, have No Choice, Swim or Drown. Um, anyway, the, the article is looking at how insurance companies are torn between making massive payouts every time there's floods, like what we've seen in New South Wales, and, and racking up a big loss for the year versus still investing and, and providing insurance to fossil fuel projects. So uh, Pablo writes that a study of climate risk into property in Australia found that uninsurable red zones, places where insurers either refuse underwriting or charge more than 1% of the property price in annual premiums are spreading as global warming worsens. So as these severe weather events become more and more common, insurance prices are going up and up. It's becoming untenable for people to be able to afford insurance. And those who are, it's they're getting really squeezed. Many parts of the world are facing similar insurance challenges. In November 2020, California, for the second year in a row, prohibited insurance companies from cancelling or refusing to renew insurance policies from millions of households in or near areas hit by wildfires. So this is another compounding factor, is state regulations affecting the insurance industry, preventing the insurers from basically not offering insurance or trying to wiggle out of offering insurance. Uh, recent winter storms in Texas could lead to insured losses of $18 billion, six times the yearly average, according to State Farm Mutual. The irony is that the insurance industry is a key pillar of the coal, oil and gas industries, those most responsible for creating the climate crisis. Without insurance, many fossil fuel companies would find it very difficult to operate their mines, power plants and oil and gas fields or build new ones. According to the Insure Our Future campaign, insurers are also the second largest group of institutional investors in fossil fuels after pension funds, uh, which is another word for superannuation super funds with the largest U.S. and European insurers investing close to $600 billion in fossil fuels. So despite some insurance companies warning about climate change since the 1970s, the insurance industry has continued to assist fossil fuel companies in the undermining of efforts to slow and stop global warming. So two things to take away from that. Number one, Capitalism is not this kind of ideal marketplace where there's all these kind of siloed, completely separate capitalist entities butting up against each other. A lot of the biggest entities in capitalism are all invested in one another. 
And so the ruling class in capitalism is very interconnected. So that's a problem. If we want to tackle climate change, we have to confront capitalism. We have to confront the system as a whole. It's no use just trying to attack the coal industry on its own because there's all these other capitalists interconnected and backing up the coal industry. Um, so that's one issue coming out of that. But uh, I'm going to contradict what I just said to some extent because as we have more and more severe wildfires, floods, that sort of thing, I think we're going to start to see splits in the capitalist class and we're going to see some big chunks of the capitalist class like insurance capital increasingly moving away from fossil capital and trying to back quote-unquote green capitalism, potentially even backing something like Green New Deal. Um, so that's interesting territory for the left and for climate activists to interact with. Market Forces as an organisation is very onto this, and I think it would be a mistake, even though I've just said capitalism is this big interconnected thing, even though I believe we can't confront climate change without confronting capitalism as a whole, nonetheless, we should expect to see splits in the capitalist class in coming years over the question of climate change. And as climate activists, we should seek to get a wedge into those splits and drive those splits open. Yeah, I think you're, you are right, um, Zane, because I think just from the perspective of the capitalist system, really climate change does represent a kind of existential kind of threat to our kind of society. But then there's also obviously the issue that fossil fuels are becoming less and less profitable. And of course, there's going to be a section of the capitalist class that is going to want to pull out of that before they, um, before it um, starts to hit them. But of course, one of the main challenges is the fact that the already existing capitalists who are making massive profits off fossil fuels right now still wield a disproportionate kind of influence, um, mm. over all governments. Um, to the point where, you know, even like, cause, you know, they all like to go on about the free market, but most fossil fuel companies these days, they're actually relying on government subsidies. <laughs> and um, protection of various forms. And, yeah. and all these state protections of various kind of mm. forms, um, which is completely hypocritical because it's all, we've all just been told leave it to the market, yet it doesn't seem to me that even the fossil fuel companies seem to be playing by those rules. Mm. Right. Well, we'll go play a quick spent and then we'll kind of um, tune into our first interview of the program, which I'll shortly introduce. You are listening to Green Left Radio. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio, 
go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way? When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we have our first guest um, for the program this week, um, who is Jackie Chris. Jackie Chris is a co-convener of the Geelong Women's um, Network, although she could correct me if I was getting the name wrong, because um, I think it has a, has a bit of a confusing sort of name. Um, and we're, we're having, um, and she was part of organising the March for Justice in Geelong, which was quite significant, um, because it attracted over 4,000 people at kind of very kind of short notice. And yeah, so we're going to have a bit, bit of discussion with Jackie about, or I guess the politics of all the issues that have come out of the federal parliament and in relation to on the on the ground organising that she has been involved in. So yeah, good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Jacob. I have Adele Welsh here as well, who's a co-convener of um, Guan and it's the Geelong Women Unionist Network. So there you go. Oh yeah. Well, good morning to Adele as well. And I guess to start off, um, Jackie, what can you tell us about? What do you think about, I guess, all the issues that have come um, out from the federal parliament around, you know, sexual harassment, rape and sexism? And how did all these kind of events inform the politics of the March for Justice rally that you're part of organising in Geelong? Gee, that's a big question, Jacob. But anyway, I'll see if I can answer it. So um, there's a lot to it. Of course, it, the movement placed a spotlight on misogynistic culture and sexual violence in our most esteemed institution, of which we call Parliament. But I think the movement has been a really fantastic vehicle for women to be able to vent their anger. But also, I think it was really... I think it's been Australia's Me Too moment, in that every day it's almost... It's quite incredible how many various ministers are being called out. Every day there's a new minister being called out for, the, for their sexual misconduct and in some cases, criminal behaviour. But anywhere, what I have noticed, and I'm sure all women have noticed, anywhere where there's a concentration of men in suits, we know that there'll be strong patriarchal systems flourish. And we shouldn't really be surprised because we know that misogyny exists in the walls of Parliament. We've always known that. And 
yet the level of sexual violence is surprising and it is totally shocking. So women are shocked by this. But this story, I think, has a lot of threads and it gets worse as time goes by. But I think it really has also exposed Scott Morrison as our, you know, supposed great leader um, or, you know, like, all his flaws. He's very, like, he's proving himself to be a very bad leader and he continues to avoid, like, you know, you see him on TV, he avoids questions, he dodges, he's not dealing with the issues, he's mismanaging, he underestimated the power of women, um, he obfuscates his responsibilities. Um, so, but it also exposes um, men, the Prime Minister and all the other ministers, they're using tactics of perpetrators. So they're gaslighting. The other day we saw him crying, um, pretending he was a victim, and then all of a sudden he attacked the News Corp um, reporter for being hip hypocritical, and yet that should not have been spoken about at all. He acted like he's a victim, and then they do victim blaming um, and, and just hiding behind, you know, oh, my wife, my sister, my auntie, whoever, my widowed mother. Um, it's just pretty bad. And the slut-shaming that's gone on as well. Um, and him pretending not to know about the rape allegations. Um, I think the cover-up has been staggering, and Laura Tingle has um, sort of outlined the, the amount of cover-up that's gone on, which we haven't got to the bottom of yet. But the movement, I think, it's also exposed how fractured our so-called democracy is. And um, I think it really shows how women do have power when we find our voice. Um, so when the when women ministers and the staff, such as the security guard, when they've spoken out, um, the system and the Speaker of the House, she spoke out against Eric Betts, which was pathetic response about the spy thing, um, allegedly, but... Is he saying then the Speaker of the House is a liar as well? Um, you know, so it, it opens the door to a lot of questions, um, but it shows that our system is very weak and can fall like a pack of cards with not much going on. But the, the movement also has informed the... Pol how has it informed the politics? Well, it has opened up the conversation of misogyny. And if this conversation was opened up a little bit when Julia, with Julia Gillard's famous misogyny speech. But I think we've moved on from there, and I think this has, like, it's really put the misogyny and sexual violence at front and centre of our minds at the moment. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things going on as well, but, yeah, so that's well, my synopsis. Yeah, well, I think that's a, that's a good kind of response. And this is just a bit of an extra question, Um I just want to hear your quick kind of comment on this. Um, but I happened to be part of the Q and, um, Q and A last night, ABC's Q and A in terms of being part of the audience. So I got to hear everyone kind of speak and so on. Um, one of the interesting things about Q and A this week is it did start off with a kind of a discussion about this whole issue of sexism in the parliament. And it was, it was sort of weird, but, um, 
they had Sam Mostyn on the panel. And Sam Mostyn, I'm not sure if you know her, is, I think she's the chair of um, Australia's National Organisation for Women's Safety and also part of the, the Australian Women's Donor Network. And she gave a bit of a response to this whole question about Scott Morrison and the federal parliament, and she almost made an argument that this past week has shown that Scott Morrison has learned from his mistakes and he's willing to make changes. In fact, I think one of those changes that's being foreshadowed is that Christian Porter and what's her name? I forgot. Um, Linda Reynolds are going to be stripped of their ministerial positions, and I'm not sure if that's happened yet, but it's strongly rumoured in the media. Do you actually agree with that comment that Scott Morrison has learned anything about about this because I'm I'm not convinced of that. Oh hi Jacob Adele here. So Jackie and I are going to um, respond um, to to questions together if that's all right. Yep. Um, and and I didn't see Q and A last night. Um, I don't. I think in terms of your question about whether Scott Morrison has learned anything, I think what he has learned is that women. Um, won't stand for being lied to and you know we're at a point um i guess in women's organizing where you know enough is enough we i think we've always known that women aren't safe at home aren't safe at work aren't safe in community and i think now that we know that women potentially aren't safe in parliament either it's i think it's been a big i guess uh, um what's the right word it's kind of just hit women really hard um you know nobody can really hide from sexist abuse anymore because you know it's just right there in the public eye. Um, And I think the thing that Scott Morrison has learned is, you know, you actually can't lie when it comes to things like this because you will be found out. Um, And I think the thing that he's sorry about is that he's been caught. Um, And I think as well, um, he made some really interesting comments in his press conference the other day. And, you know, as I was listening to that, I thought he he has known all along um, that women aren't safe. He was trying to make out that um, these were kind of new issues, but I think he's known all along and he's made some kind of really broad statements. So I think there's some really clear opportunities there for, you know, for women and socialists and unions to just jump into that space and hold him accountable and yeah. demand change. Well, my next question um, for either you or Jackie Adele is the rally attracted over 4,000 people in a, you know, a small city like Geelong, which I think is a, a very, a very good result at such short notice. Um, and of course, I know the Geelong Women's Network played a big role in um, organising, which you are all part of. And yeah. I guess, what can you tell us about the experiences of organising it? Um, yeah, I'd like to kind of hear a bit of kind of reflection on that. Um, well, I guess. Guan already has a really strong platform in Geelong. We've done a lot of organising around family violence and equal pay. So we already had existing networks 
to tap into. Um, so I think that put us in a really strong position, you know, right from the start to be able to, I guess, run with this at really short notice. And we do know as, you know, feminists and unionists and socialists that um, we do have to be ready um, at a moment's notice sometimes to, you know, to tap in, you know, to the mood or, you know, to, to new issues that arise. Um, and one of the difficulties with the march was that it kind of happened on the back of International Women's Day and the Labor Day dinner. So Guan's got a really strong tradition in Geelong of running um, an International Women's Day breakfast. Over recent years, we've broadened that out um, and we hold a rally as well. And this year's breakfast was really, really well attended. We ran... um, the, the the Women of Steel film as a fundraiser um, and the, uh, that was a sellout. Um, we had a really, really strong showing at our Labor Day dinner um, and Guan Run, um, a, women, a woman unionist of the ward, of, of the year award and we actually had three winners this year. So it's, it came at one of the most busy times of the year for us. Um, but so we we used the division of labour model. You know, we delegated work. We had a media liaison. We had media releases ready to go. We had a police liaison. You know, we um, were lucky enough to be able to use trade tools resources. So, you know, we had the sound system. Um, we offered martial training on the day. Um, we were able to work out our speakers really quickly and tap into our um, existing networks, you know, to get people to speak. And because we do run at least one rally a year, sometimes two, you know, we kind of had the route already down pat. Um, and in terms of, you know, like how we prioritised who would do what, um, you know, we recognised that people had different talents. Um, so we tapped into people's existing skills. But, you know, sometimes, you, you know, you kind of have to challenge people to get them out of their comfort zone. Um, so we did that as well. Um and I guess, like, it was just to me, it was... A, so, so as, you, as you'd be aware, Jacob, Guan's a grassroots women's unionist network. Um, and I think the rally just really tapped in so well to Guan's kind of core foundations of solidarity and feminism and capturing women's voices. You know, as unionists, we go to a lot of rallies But I think this one just really, for me, captured, you know, the mood and the heart of women. You know, there were people there from all age groups, schoolgirls, mums, dads, with kids on their shoulders, you know, school groups. It was just an amazing, amazing event. And we were just so proud of, you know, our Geelong community to see them come out in such strong numbers. Yeah. And I guess I want to kind of hear a bit more about um, about the Geelong Women's Network because the issues that have come out of the federal parliament aren't necessarily new. 
um, given the fact that workplaces themselves often have issues kind of dealing with sexism, um, especially the issues of workplace harassment. And I guess I want to kind of hear about what has the type of role that the Geelong Women's Network has been playing in campaigning um, around this issue? So I would say that we've probably been at the forefront of this um, for a very long time. So in the past, we've run workshops on family violence, gender part, uh, gendered violence. Um, we've partnered from um, the, the VTHC women's team. Um, and we've done it, you know, like we've either run workshops or forums or all-day conferences. Um, and I, I guess, so, you know, when you look at family violence, and then gendered violence in the workplace. Um, you know, family violence is seen as, you know, like a home issue. Um, gendered violence in the workplace is seen as a women's issue, but they're both actually unions issues, uh, union issues. And, you know, I think for the... One of the things we know about family violence is that, you know, one in three women who experience family violence are in the paid workforce. And we know that far too many women, you know, fall out of the paid work system because of the violence. Um, so it absolutely is a union issue. Um, and it's, it's an RHS issue as well. You know, there's work, um, work safe legislation now to state that employers are legally bound to provide a safe workplace, um, you know, not only for bullying, but, you know, for gender violence and sexual harassment as well. Um, so Guan has played a really, really big role in our local community. And I guess one of the things that um, we're known for is capturing women's voices. And I think last week at the March for Justice, women just came out en masse um, and you know their voices were really, really heard. Hmm. Okay, so just Adele and Jackie, um, we just um, this interview has been great. We're not going to we're not going to end it, but we'll just get to play a quick announcement, and then we'll get to continue the interview with the rest of the questions we're going to ask. Um, so just no for worries. our listeners, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and I'm just going to play a quick announcement. Um, and then we'll be back to having um, continuing our discussion with Jackie and Adele. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. Uh, it's about 7.35, and on the phone we've got Adele Welsh and Jackie Chris from the Geelong Women Unionists Network, or GWAN. Uh, welcome back, Adele and Jackie. Thank you. 
Okay, so I just wanted to um, ask, um, my next question is, you've just um, recently written an article for Green Left um, on the kind of march for justice, and I guess you quote one of your, um, to quote one of your comrades, Zeta, and she mm. stated in the article, um, socialist women were critical to the success of the Geelong rally and will be to the March for Justice movement go, going forward. And I guess what is your kind of elaboration, I guess, on that particular point, especially on terms of what is, what do socialists have to say really about this whole question of right. women's oppression and sexism? Yes. Okay. You've got to the nub of the issue, I think. Um, but before I get to the nub, I just want to say socialist women, um, most of the socialist women did organise the rally, um, a, a part of one. We're not all socialists, of course. We have a lot of um, left-leaning people as well, women. Um, but we do have... We are involved with a strong tradition of unionism and activism and organising in a methodical way. So, But we do stick our necks out a lot in times, and so we do push our unions with progressive demands um, and sometimes we win and sometimes we don't and sometimes it's quite difficult but we try and do that and um, I do that with my fellow nurse friends. Um, we try and push our union, you know, with different, um, you know, uh, motions at our delegates' conferences. But with particularly to this issue, um, so the March for Justice, the... The uh, main organisers in Canberra, so they their demands are more about inquiries into the parliamentary processes, holding ministers to account, that sort of thing. So they'll be either internal, it's about ten demands or whatever. A lot of it is about um, inquiries, whether it's external or internal, and, and reforming the Sex Discrimination Act. But the white socialist feminists need to be involved with the sexism and misogyny. We see this through the prism of capitalism. And so it is the what we think is that the unpaid labour of women that keep capitalism alive and well. And so we know that um, without the oppression of women, capitalism probably wouldn't flourish and would not exist. Um, so there's... We know that 50% of the population is subjugated and because of this, capitalism continues to thrive and, you know, profit. But um, it's very survival. It does, depends on the continuation of patriarchy in all its forms, whether it be sexism or, um, you know, sexual harassment or rape culture. Um, so, um, so we know the unpaid labour of women equates to about 59% of the GDP, and that's a figure that comes up a lot, 50 to 59%. But in 2018, the Victorian government quantified it, which was amazing. So they actually did studies, so you can look it up and prove it. Um, so it's calculated um, as $205 billion of the Victorian GDP is calculated as unpaid labour of women that women contribute. So our little state of Victoria couldn't survive on our unpaid labour. Um, and we need to work... So what um, we're saying in, as socialist women, we, as, as part of the demands of the movement, we want to push for equal pay and um, economic equality because if we don't have economic equality, we're not going to have equality. So if we can educate our children, we can um, try and change the culture 
but we see underpinning that culture is profit from capitalism, from the unpaid labour of women. So until we fix that, we're not going to fix the problem. Um, so our demands, and we're not going to smash patriarchy in two seconds, so we understand that. So we need some demands that are achievable, and I think this is the climate where we can achieve um, some wins. And so one of the wins, which we, we... And we haven't sort of worked it out all yet, but we do think that free childcare... Now, that is the demand that women have gone... Australian women have wanted forever. But we did see a little snippet of it in COVID. When they want to find the money, I mean, they can spend billions of dollars on war and take money, give it, you know, subsidies for various corporations. I know Alcoa got lots of subsidies when they were here and then they just left. Um, same with Ford. Um, so the coal barons get millions and billions of subsidies. And yet we can't in this country get free childcare and things like that. So that's what we want to look at. Um, we want to achieve some economic equality. One of the things we have been talking about is really supporting the early educated campaign um, because they've had their campaign to try and get um, better wages. And that's a campaign we might, um, you know, we want to put, we've always supported them, but maybe start picking out a few demands that we can really get our teeth into and win. Um, and this is the time, I think we're at a time in history in, in Australia, this is I don't think we've ever had this um, epoch in time where we can actually have a go at winning some um, demands. Um, I just um, wanted to stop um, you there to kind of con- go into the concluding kind of question because we actually got another interview that we've got to go progress to, um, but we have, um, but there should be time for this final kind of question. And I guess I want to sort of um, conclude by kind of asking what do you kind of think the next steps for um, the March for Justice campaign should be? In fact, quite recently in the Australian Financial Review, um, sort of prominent sort of feminist um, Anne Summers kind of made this sort of argument that March for Justice should basically turn into, I guess, a marginal seats campaign and a kind of an interesting, well, to elect Labor, of course, as if um, Labor have really done anything. Um, and I guess, yeah, want to kind of hear your comments on what you think the next steps would be. And I've sort of also given an example of what one particular tendency thinks the next steps should be. And look, hi, Jacob, it's Adele here again. Um, I think, you know, political lobbying has to be a part of, you know, any movement or any campaign because we we do need um, we do need the legislation you know to back up the the changes on the ground that we want to see but you know I to me a campaign that's based solely on political political campaigning is bound to fail um, because what we know is family and gendered violence happens everywhere. It happens in, you know, homes, workplaces, communities. It happens across the political spectrum. We know that it happens in unions. So electing a a political party in the hopes that that party will solve this issue is like... I would say the movement would be just setting themselves up 
for failure. Um, so what one would want to see, and look, we are still talking, you know, to the main March for Justice organising group, but what we would like to see um, is, as Jackie's already mentioned, we're going to develop up our own set of demands um, and we are going to join Victoria Trades Hall Women um, in a, you know, in some lobbying. But you know, we some of our demands, like Jackie said, would be free childcare, um, ending casualised, insecure work, increasing the um, NES standards for ten days of paid family violence leave, increasing. Um, superannuation contributions and in terms of the 10 days of paid family violence leave, you know, currently there's only five days of unpaid leave. Um, so women, you know, who are more likely to be in low paid, insecure work and have less financial resources to start off with are far, you know, they're far more disadvantaged than say a woman who works in an industry with an EBA for 20 days of paid family violence leave. So we think at the minimum 10 days of paid leave should be in the NES. And what we're going to do, and we're, we're hoping to make an announcement really quickly, really soon, um, what we want to do is have an open um, planning forum in Geelong um, and we'll bring the community together hear their voices and, you know, develop some demands and our next actions together with the community. Well, thank you very much, um, Adele and Jackie. And do you just have any short, brief final comments you'd like to make? Um, I guess for me, it's really important for the momentum that's been gathered around the March for Justice, you know, to continue to be harnessed and to be moved forwards. I think it would be a really, really big shame if, you know, this was to end now. Um, so we've got some momentum. You know, it's there, there's a national platform. There's so much media, media interest. But what we need to do is take this campaign out of the talking on TV and newspaper articles into real clear actions that are going to benefit women. Well, thank you very much um, for the interview, um, Jackie and um, Adele. And, yeah, cheers, uh, comrades. Staunch as. Keep up the good work. Yeah, keep up the good work. Okay. Hey, thank you so much, Jacob. Bye. All right. You're listening to, um, you're just listening to an interview with Jackie, Chris and Adele Welsh from the Geelong Women's Network who, and they were both part of organising the March for Justice in, that happened a few weeks ago in Geelong. Now, um, we're going to go on, we're going to get to play a quick announcement and then we'll be going on to our second interview for the program with Josh Cullen, um, from, who is the secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. 
or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You are listening to Green Left um, Radio, and on the line we have the we're happy to have um, the Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food um, Workers Union, um, Josh Cullen, and we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with him about because um, he's just recently recently wrote an article for Green Left, which is going to be coming up in the new issue, which give um, where he outlines some of his thoughts on this new ominous bill that has been passed um, in the Parliament. So, yeah, good morning, Josh. Good morning, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I guess I want to kind of start off is, I guess, what can you, I guess, um, what are your kind of comments on this ominous bill, um, especially in terms of what has been passed in terms of the rights of casual workers? And also, if you could actually even explain what has actually been passed and what are the implications of this sort of change that has been legislated for casual workers. Yeah, sure. So, so the stripped-back omnibus bill has really only a very narrow set of arrangements which are being put in place now, and, and they deal with uh, casual employment. Uh, and for the first time in Australia, we now have a definition of what a casual employee is. And that definition doesn't connect with the lived reality or the workplace reality of the casual worker, it simply sets the casual employment relationship based on the decisions and desires of the employer at the time of appointing a casual worker. Um, and the critical thing with that is, is that up until now, workers have been able to show that if they're not actually employed on a casual basis... Uh, that they are entitled to other things like annual leave and sick leave and redundancy rights. And this legislation is specifically designed, specifically designed to obliterate uh, those rights and to guarantee that a casual worker or a worker employed on a casual basis uh, will be forever deemed so unless uh, some other action is taken or they're able to uh, arrange conversion of some sort. Um, and so the legislation specifically deals with that issue and makes sure that no one can ever consider them not a casual worker uh, unless uh, it can be proved that what went on when they were first employed was somehow um, inappropriate. Mm. The other parts of the bill, there's two other parts. One is to give workers 
a right to be offered non-casual employment um, or to seek casual conversion. Uh, this is different from the current arrangements. Some workers will have, for the first opportunity, some form of right around conversion from casual employment, um, particularly in the university sector and particularly at large employers that have previously had enterprise agreements like funding. Uh, the, the big difference, though, with this is that we're going to just see every employer argue that the workers just aren't eligible. There's no civil penalties for not complying with these terms. Uh, it's a fairly straightforward process for employers just to not offer, to not even mention it, and simply say that these workers were just not eligible. Um, and so we will see that used in a mass way. But the, the, the big change is to really define what casual employment is. Now... The reason behind this change is that we've had over the last three or four years uh, one particular law firm, but others as well, uh, start litigating on behalf of casual workers for the entitlements, the annual leave, the personal leave and the redundancy that they had never been given uh, because they weren't at law uh, workers employed in casual employment. They're actually part-time or full-time workers. And so... Uh, this has been established 11 years ago, 12 years ago in the federal court, uh, but those class actions that have been launched are now really presenting a serious concern to big business, um, and uh, they admit that there's billions and billions of dollars owed, um, and so this legislation is about destroying those rights and retrospectively annihilating those wages actions. Yeah, I was just going to ask that, Josh. Is this retrospective? How is that? How, how how is that possible? How is that justified to retrospectively apply this new definition of casualisation to all of those backlog of cases? Yes. Yeah, so so the, the definition itself won't be retrospective, although it has application depending on what was put in employment contracts. Uh, but certainly. Um, the court actions that are about the claims for annual leave and sick leave is, is made retrospective. And we've already seen uh, one of the law firms come out and suggest that, uh, that that creates a sovereign risk for Australia and that this such retrospective legislation um, is, is unlawful and that, that they may be exploring that. Um, it's just, I mean, this is just pandering to the biggest end of town. Employers like... McDonald's that has 85% of its workforce engaged on a casual basis. Now, we all know that McDonald's relies on those workers to turn up every week of every month of every year to keep their outlets open. Kmart, 85% of its workforce engaged on a casual basis. So these kinds of employers are concerned that workers will start making the demands for those wages. And so we have this ridiculous and um, unprecedented approach by the parliament to, to retrospectively annihilate those stolen wages. But these are just stolen wages. No, no other way of describing them. They've stolen that annual leave. They've stolen those personal leave and redundancies. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's unheard of. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go... I'll go into one of the other questions um, that, um, that you've sort of posed in your kind of article um, regarding the ACTU. But I guess just the first kind of question I kind of want to... Ask. Just want to hear your quick thoughts on one thing. The, in terms of these kind of implications of these changes, um, 
one of the things that was quite clear from the COVID-19 kind of pandemic is that insecure and casualized kind of work is really not um not equipped at all to deal with a pandemic you had issue you've um had these constant issues of um like for example the the um the security guard who has to work kind of two jobs and then you also have insecure point being um the root of a lot of um unsafe kind of workplace um practices by the bosses um in terms of this controlling and containing the pandemic like yeah i kind of want to just hear your kind of comments in terms of the implications does this legislation, does any of this legislative kind of change actually deal with any of these issues that have been kind of posed by the pandemic, even from the perspective of the bosses trying to create a safe workplace and equip it for, a, to, for dealing with a pandemic? Uh, so um, in terms of dealing with the pandemic, the, the bosses have no interest in creating a safe workplace. Like, I think we need to be probably direct about that. The, 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 the very powerful, so the courts and parliaments and places of that nature, um, and the head offices of the bosses have an interest. Yeah, but these are, these are types of places where no worker can enter without being security screened or x-rayed and, um, the, the everyday workplaces of workers. The bosses have no interest. I mean, these are the same bosses that get garments from Bangladesh. These are the same bosses that source products from overseas where abominable practices occur um, and where workers are routinely injured, maimed and killed just going about their day's work. So so these bosses have no genuine interest in in safety of work. I mean, when it impacts upon their own personal safety. Um, And so casual employment you know, I've been working around casual employment now for 25 years, and it is, in its very nature, um, it tears at the fabric of, of workers, of their collective nature in the workplace and, and of the broader society. Workers are unable to raise concerns about safety of work because they're in insecure employment. They know, and we know, that when they raise these concerns, they will be sacked, they will lose shifts, um, and... So the entrenching of that form of employment with no rights um, is abominable in the context of the pandemic. Um, some other countries don't have these types of employment um, and, uh, and the workforce is all the better for it um, and wages are higher and conditions are better. Um, but in Australia, this form of employment tears at all of those rights and, and the genuineness of, of having a healthy and, and safe workplace. Um, and so in terms of the pandemic, no, these, can, these changes will entrench these issues. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't already exist. They did. Um, this, the, the cases that were being run was a glimmer of hope in dealing with some of these issues. The workers weren't actually casual employees. But the conversion arrangements and the other steps, we, as we've seen, they are just ineffective. Uh, workers are, are scared about making those applications and there are so many impediments once they do make those applications um, that it's very simple for bosses to deny them. Um, and uh, those arrangements that are now being legislated won't, won't change that. Um, and so it doesn't... Um, I guess what it does is it's another, another attack on those small glimmers of hope that we do have um, that some of this uh, that this legislation is now designed to avoid entirely.
Okay. Well, now going into guess the next kind of point is I kind of want to hear you were basic, you in your article, you made, I guess, a bit of criticism of the ACTU's kind of role, um, in terms of, in terms of the lead up in around this, um, omnibus bill in terms of the kind of negotiation kind of tactic. And I kind of want to hear you kind of elaborate more on your kind of views on what the ACTU's kind of role in this, um, whole, um, this whole, um, bill has been. Yeah, sure. So, so um, RAFWU is not affiliated to the ACTU. Um, ACTU hasn't invited it to affiliate. Um, we just get on with the everyday work of organising in workplaces. Um, what we were concerned with is that Christian Porter last year um, approached um, the ACTU and um, the SDA um, and sought for them to participate in this uh, process of negotiating around five key themes, including casual employment and including enterprise agreements and, and other um, changes to industrial laws. Um, and the ACTU um, openly embraced that opportunity. Um, and, you know, we're concerned that that came off the back of the failed Change the Rules campaign and the ACTU is desperate for some kind of relevance. Um, but we knew back in March and April last year that this government and big business had no interest in changing anything for the positive for working people in Australia. Um, so that wasn't that's not like complex. That's not some far left conspiracy theory. That this government has done all it can to attack workers. Big business does all it can to attack workers. So um, these opportunities to sit down and break bread and have chocky bickies and have long lunches with, of all people, Christian Porter, uh, we knew at the time was um, not going to deliver anything for workers. And in fact, just demobilised the labour movement for nine months throughout the pandemic when we should have been building a radical and active campaign to take on these challenges, to organise workers in casual employment and ensure that they had a fighting voice this year when they needed to fight back against these, these changes and these attacks, which will literally cost casual workers in Australia tens of billions of dollars in lost annual leave, personal leave and redundancy. And so we were saying that last year, so with some other unions, they were heavily critical as well. Um, but uh, the ACTU didn't listen. Um, and what we heard over that period was that they were trying to negotiate some special arrangements, uh, effectively for the SDA, to be able to go back to its business model of, of enterprise agreements, which cut the minimum conditions. Um, and so we were very, very disappointed by that. And, and, and at, at its core, in terms of casual employment and workers in precarious employment, at its core, there is no voice for them in the Australian labour movement. The, the workers in casual employment are so underrepresented in any of the genuine democratic unions um, that there is no rising of workers in precarious employment to the leadership of unions and to the leadership of the movement. There isn't even some kind of caucus where there is a group of activist leaders who are able to speak to these issues, issues that affect millions of Australians millions of working people. Um, and instead, we have the charity of the aristocracy of the labour movement speaking on behalf of those in this form of employment. And those representatives, whether they be well-meaning or not, have no real connection with precarious employment and the woeful experience that inflicts upon workers. 
So we're deeply concerned that Australia and all working people need to have representatives from the shop floor experiencing those real issues and they need to be organised. And so our, my point in the, in the article really is, is that there is no voice at the moment for those workers and we shouldn't be listening to anyone that wants to give charity. We should be listening to those workers. Um, and, and it's urgent for the movement in Australia to elevate their voices, organise those workers and ensure that they speak on behalf of themselves in, in a fight which affects us all. Yeah. Um, Zane, did you have a question, extra question you wanted to ask? And we can probably include, include this interview soon. Yeah, oh, just sort of, um, I wonder what's the RAFWU strategy for cohering that kind of fighting um, wing of the of the labour movement on this uh, on this question. Yeah, great question. And I think our our fight really starts in our own backyard. You know, we're, we're four and a half years old. Uh, we're trying to organise around casual employment every day of every week. It is so hard. Uh, we have a dedicated um, uh, activist caucus organiser who's doing some fantastic work, Tilda, with, with workers. Um, we've uh, uh, reached out to Kapow, who are doing some great organising around the NTU um, uh, sector, so universities, uh, with casual and precarious workers. Um, and that organisation, Kapow, um, is going to be speaking at a, a, a conference or an event we're having next week for members who are engaged in casual and precarious employment. Um, so we're trying to build up a, a, a semi-autonomous caucus uh, of workers in casual employment. Um, we also run a local-based activist campaigns. So we're hopeful to be able to share more of those stories, but whether it's a bookshop that's staffed entirely by workers who are in casual employment and trying to have them take direct action towards securing their employment, or whether it's a fantastic group of young women working at a supermarket who are being sexually harassed, being able to um, collectively march in on their boss, demand that perpetrators be um, be sacked and that managers be held accountable. Um, we're trying to run more and more of these kinds of actions and events and elevate their voice and elevate and educate them in, in the power of their collective action um, and build that build that semi-autonomous caucus so that we're able to, down the track, in the very near future, months, not decades, um, we're able to um, ensure that they speak on behalf of these issues for RAFWU. And we hope that that not only empowers them in their future work that might be beyond our sector and taking getting involved in other unions, uh, we hope that also um, sends a, a great example to other organisations that they can do this and that they can have these workers um, speak on these issues and um, take action on these issues. All right. Well, um, I think we might go and conclude this interview, Josh. I think you've given sort of great answers to all the kind of questions we're going to ask. Do you, I guess, have any final comments you'd like to make? Well, look, I think the only thing I'd like to say at this point is that um, any precarious workers who are listening and who may be a little disillusioned with what's going on in their union, we just encourage them to get involved, certainly if they're in retail and fast food. Reach out to us, get involved. We want to find ways to support, activate um, and organise your co-workers. Um, and, you know, it really requires a community of, of such workers right across sectors to support each other and be the groundswell in what we need to radically change this. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, um, Josh. Um, but, yeah, I think I definitely think that's a, a kind of good message to um 
um, to end on. And yes, if, especially if you are a casual worker um, who is working in the fast food and retail industry, I definitely recommend if you haven't already getting in contact with um, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Thanks again, Josh. Thanks for having me. All right. Okay. Well, we're just go. I'll just go play a quick announcement, and then we'll quickly move on to the Green Left activist calendar. You are listening to Green Left Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you are listening to Green Left um, Radio. And it is now time for the activist calendar. Now, I guess there's a few kind of things, um, events I kind of, kind of want to announce. Um, so just to note today, um, there'll be a pro, um, there'll be another pro, another refugee protest as part of the Freedom Fridays organized by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Um, today at six o'clock, um, outside the Park Hotel. And yeah, that, I think it's, um, these sort of weekly protests and daily protests, I think, have been very important because there are still 13 kind of refugees who are still detained in the um, in in the Park Hotel. Now, the next event I just want to kind of note is um, there has been an anti-racism rally, um, a snap action kind of being called by residents of Moreland. And this is in response to some graffiti that was found that basically spelled out Hitler, um, and which kind of indicates there might be some presence of far-right organising, or it could be a group of individuals. Um, we don't know kind of at this point. However, residents who witnessed um, this um, graffiti, um, which has been since removed, um, and it was found between, I think, the upfield bike path and Coburg kind of station... Anyway, there is going to be a rally um, called by these residents, a snap action, at 3.30 at the Bullock-Key-Beck Park, which is on Free West Street in Brunswick this Saturday at 3.30pm. And so, yeah, definitely recommend getting along to that if you can. And then on Saturday... Um, Saturday night, um, Green Left, as we've kind of said previously on our previous week's program, is going to be having its 30th anniversary. Well, it is in its 30th anniversary. So we have a special 30th anniversary event at 7pm, which is going to be an online event which will feature um, Indian feminist and socialist activist Kavita Krishna, who will be speaking and who will be addressing the um, celebration by speaking about the farmers' strike. Um, or the farmers' protests that have been happening in India. 
so that's going to be happening at 7pm this Saturday and you can book a ticket for either $0, i.e. free, or $5 or $10 via shy booking and you can get all the details on how to get into that on the Green Left website at greenleft.org.au. Then the next um, protest um, I want to note is there is going to be... Um, there's going to be the um, the Palm Sunday rally, the annual Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees, um, which is going to be happening this um, Sunday at 2pm at the State Library. I think this is going to be an important kind of rally to, um, to attend, especially in terms of keeping up the kind of pressure. While there has been a number of recent releases of refugees, in det- um, there's, there's still a number who remain in some of the alternative places detention and they're still refugees who are still in offshore detention as well okay and now the next announcement i'm just i'm probably just going to be a bit over the place because i'm just sort of doing off the top of my head um on the easter weekend um the annual marxism conference is going to be um held by um which is organized i guess by um by socialist alternative and it's just hap- i think it's happening in the meat market in north melbourne but if yeah, you check the Marxism website, I guess, to find kind of the details. But that's just happening on the Easter weekend. Now, I'm just need Zane, do you have any other events to add? Yeah. Oh, so it's at this old meat market. It's, isn't it usually at VCA or something? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, Melbourne Uni um, has basically, it's impossible to book anything at Melbourne Uni. Because of COVID? Well, yeah, they're basically using COVID as a pretense that you can't do host any events. In fact... In terms of just some, just some drawing on some experiences of in-person sort of organising and stuff, it seems to me that the Melbourne City Council are the main council that has actually opened up bookings to community groups and organisations to host kind of in-person sort of gatherings. And so the meat market is actually um, handled by the um, City of Melbourne Council. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, just... Uh we started going a bit into the future, like Marxism next weekend, but just to wind the clock back to today, uh, happening right now as part of the Autumn Rebellion, there's a Youth Rebel Ride happening. I assume if you go to the... Is it Carlton Gardens? Where the Extinction Rebellion camp is happening? Uh, I believe it is. It's in the southwest corner of Carlton Gardens. There's some big banners there. You'll see it. Uh, there's a youth rebel ride this morning. And then this evening, meeting at the State Library from 5 to 8.30pm, there's a climate street party. That does clash with the uh, Fridays for Freedom refugee protests that will be happening uh, on Ligon Street that we mentioned. So... Uh, yeah, maybe go to the climate rally and then head along to the refugee rally or something. Uh, tomorrow, 10.30am to 1pm, there is a women's march for climate. And on Sunday, 10 to 12, 10am to 12 noon, civil disobedience for climate action. So yeah, if you want to go and check out Extinction Rebellion, uh, Carlton Gardens, the uh, southwestern corner. Go and say good day and check it out. And yeah, um, 
Oh, yeah, sorry, listeners, just for going a bit all over the place with the dates, but now I'm going to go back into the future again <laughs> um, and tell you about another actually important protest. Um, this has actually just been called yesterday by Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, but it is a National Day of Action Stop Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, Black Lives Matter, 30 years um, since the Royal Commission, still no justice. And so this rally is going to be happening on Saturday, April the 10th at 1pm outside the Parliament House. And of course, just in case you happen to be listening um, from another state, um, this is a National Day of Action, so there potentially is also rallies. I'm pretty sure there will be rallies in Brisbane and um, Brisbane and Sydney um, with potentially other kind of dates as well. But yeah, we'll try and sort of update the Green Left kind of website to include the details of all the different kind of rallies. And the next, I'm just going into sort of some of the next kind of events. Um, yeah, I think that's the last kind of event I just want to note is there is an online conference, um, What Casuals Want, Getting Organised for Bargaining and Beyond, um, which has been organised by the Casual, Unemployed and Precarious University Workers. So this is um, uh, basically going to be a gathering for casuals who work in the university sector to sort of get together and network and sort of talk about organising and kind of next steps. So and is that being organised by that group that uh, Josh mentioned in the interview? Um, it's new, it sounded like some new NTEU subgroup for, like, organising against casualisation. In- potentially, I think it is. It potentially is linked to... Because there's actually been a lot of different casual networks for NTU, which are on based on different branches. So, like, Melbourne Uni has its own casual network. RMIT has its own casual network. I imagine this network is um, trying to, is basically about bringing together all the kind of university workers across the different workplaces. Yeah, good to see. So, yeah, that's happening on April the 9th to April the 10th. And, yeah, you can sort of register kind of online for it. So, yeah. Okay. Well, where your list, um, yeah, so just to listeners, we were just um, doing the Green Left kind of activist calendar. I might just go play a quick announcement and we'll go on to the next um, part of the program. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello, you know, all stories may, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet because Invasion Day was the start of the dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So Scott Morrison, if he really wants to lead this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377.
Okay, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And on, we were just um, do, doing the activist calendar. And now we have kind of like 10 minutes kind of left um, for our program. And I thought I would, um, maybe I can have a bit of a discussion about my kind of experience um, yesterday. Um, so just for listeners kind of information, I kind of had the pleasure of being invited to be part of ABC's Q&A program, which I'm not sure if any of our listeners kind of watch. I know most people I know on the left don't actually watch the program. Um, Zane didn't really tune in <laughs> um, yesterday. Um, but it was sort of interesting, but just to give you a bit of a description of the panel, basically the panel kind of centred on fixing the future and essentially sort of talking about what does kind of a post-COVID kind of world look like and, of course, what do we do about racism, inequality and sexism kind of in society? Now, I guess, I mean, the main kind of interesting kind of... The panel had a number of kind of interesting features. So it, it actually featured um, a prominent French economist, Thomas Piketty, who has kind of written quite a lot of good work on um, the inequality of capitalism today. Um, it had um, the prominent um, Indigenous author who's, um, who wrote um, Dark Emu called Bruce Pascoe. And then it, it managed, it had these two right-wing kind of um, figures, um, one who's an, an economist at the UNSW called um, Gigi Foster, and then it had um, the economics editor for the Australian, um, Adam Creighton, or Adam, I forgot his name. Crichton. Adam Crichton. Oh, Adam Crichton. Yes. So now I probably won't um, have time to go into kind of everything kind of said. And oh, yes, it also finished, uh, featured, um, I forgot. Oh, yes, Stan Grant, um, who's a prominent oh, yeah. sort of um, Aboriginal man who um, right, who is part, who is an ABC, who is an ABC presenter. And then they'd had this woman whose name I forgot. I mentioned her before in the interview with Jackie, um, but just let me... I can't believe I forgot I was actually part of the audience, so I kind of forgot. <laughs> bit embarrassing. But actually, maybe I'll actually start off by kind of summarising, guess, a bit of kind of the discussion. Um, so I sort of um, kind of posed a, a bit of a question uh, to Thomas Piketty because Thomas Piketty proposes this idea that they should be, in terms of dealing with the inequalities, he rightfully proposes, and this is was part of the question I kind of asked, that what we need to kind of deal with the kind of inequalities is we need a global kind of wealth tax. And so I sort of put forward the argument, and this is coming from the perspective of someone who is a socialist and is a, re a socialist in the revolutionary kind of tradition, so I come from a kind of uh, that kind of political framework. I sort of propose the question, isn't it kind of a bit utopian to think that we could have something like a global wealth tax um, and get the rich and the politicians to willfully agree to having their wealth kind of taken away. Now, Thomas Piketty, kind of his response was, in some sense, he's, he gave a kind of a, long, a bit of a long-winded kind of response, but his kind of response was basically saying that, you know, well, if you look at history, we have um, achieved kind of high um, wealth taxes, tax, um, serious kind of taxes on the rich. And he kind of used the example of um, the New Deal and FDR. Now, 
as a socialist, my perspective on the New Deal is that the New Deal was really an attempt to tame kind of capitalism. Um, and it was in response to this kind of radical kind of mass movement that was actually pushing for something beyond kind of capitalism. So that's sort of the basic sort of analysis. Um, and so that's probably where my, I kind of disagree with, with, um, with Thomas Piketty on that score. But I guess one of the interesting things or, all the panellists got to sort of discuss the kind of question. And they went on basically, um, you know, mo- most of the people who are all not... Ne- they're not necessarily all radicals on the panel. I mean, none of them really were radicals. To me, the closest radical probably was Bruce Pascoe, who I think his work really has radical implications, which is Dark Emu. There was this whole interesting kind of discussion where... None of the presenters necessarily disagreed with the idea of having a global wealth tax, but then they couldn't figure out how you could possibly implement it because G.G. Foster, who is this right-wing sort of UNSW economist who basically argued that Australia should have adopted Sweden's model of dealing with COVID-19 because the cost of um, COVID-19 to the economy was too high, um, her words um, on the on that on that panel last night, you know, she pointed out that oh well, even if we get we got every single country to agree um, to a kind of global wealth tax, there would be one country that would probably not sign up to it, and that would be the country where all the kind of rich would go and flock to. And I thought it was interesting that that kind of discussion actually kind of revealed a kind of big sort of contradiction about capitalism and the nature of capitalism because essentially there is sometimes this argument that we can just sort of return to sort of Keynesian sort of economics but actually the 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 advent of globalization actually almost makes that untenable and in fact actually my argument is is that really if we um you actually have to challenge the power of the capitalist class you actually we actually have to force them to pay their fair share of tax, and that involves mm. masses of people standing up. And it involves internationalism. It's got to be a global campaign. But I, I, I disagree with that argument that, you know, say two-thirds of the planet implemented... And, we, well, it's it's worth mentioning, too. We're talking here particularly about rich countries where capital is, is located, but we really would need to implement a wealth tax worldwide let's say it's across two-thirds of the planet rich countries poor countries and then there's um let's say three quarters of the planet Uh, say there is this proverbial one country that doesn't implement um the wealth tax and all the rich people go there well what are they going to do like this this avoids the recognition that the place that capitalists get their wealth from is from exploiting natural resources, yes, but exploiting workers. And if you cut off 90% of the planet, two-thirds, 75%, 90% of the planet, if you get this wealth tax happening over most of the planet, then for capitalists to exploit workers in that majority of the planet where there's a wealth tax, then they'll be subject to that wealth tax. So, yeah, this idea that there's this one country that all the capitalists will go to, ignores the fact that capitalists get their wealth from the labour of workers. So I I can see that argument about capital flight. I can understand where it's coming from, and there's an element of truth to it, but... 
Yeah, but I think, I mean, my my sort of impression, and this has got to be, have to be the final kind of note to land, and is really that whole the whole discussion of all the panelists, and this is very typical of kind of ABC and Q and A, is most of all the presenters, no matter how well intended, um, all the um the panelists, no matter how well intended. Um, they might be, they still worked very much within the framework of liberal kind of democracy. And in fact, they just don't seem to envision any kind of alternative way of creating political change other than through government or through the parliament. And in fact, that's one of the things about my question is I set a context by saying that there's been these mass movements for climate action um, against the killings of African-Americans at the hands of the police, farmers rising up in India, and of course I met, I referenced to Piketty, the Yellow Vest movements, like all these movements, an example of the discontent in society um, and an anger with the inequalities that we kind of see around us and people stand, rising up and taking um, action in their own hands. And I think for that panel, a lot of the panellists didn't seem to, they didn't get this concept mm. of a mass movement, the idea that the mass... It's not on their wavelength. Yeah, it's just not in their wavelength. <laughs> and it's probably mm. the most frustrating aspect of that program because, yeah, mm. really they didn't seem to get it. And I even, even after I sort of, in my question, tried to sort of set that context of actually, yes, we actually need mass movements to create change. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, you can, um, but yeah, if you want to um, see my appearance on Q&A, you can go on the Q&A <laughs> website and um, check it out. And um, I asked a question, I think, at the 46.51 um, minute mark. Anyway, I think that is time to conclude the program. Sorry, listeners, that we couldn't go into everything, but I think it's a bit of a long discussion and it's not like the most interesting thing I want to kind of discuss, which is Q&A. <laughs> I rather have discussed other interesting sort of topics, but I'd like to thank all our listeners and guests for being on the program this week. And yeah, tune in um, next week for Green Left Radio. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that...